Hi, how's it going, everybody? And welcome to the Debutify podcast, the premier e-commerce podcast brought to you by Debutify. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and joining me today is Richard Harris, the CEO and founder of Black Crow AI, a no-code, real-time, machine-learning-based predictive software company that helps brands understand their customers' behaviors. On this episode, Richard and I discuss how Black Crow targets the most profitable users, why the AI is designed for marketers instead of data scientists, the future of AI, and much more. Here's our interview now. Richard, welcome to the show. Great to be here with you. Very happy to have you. First off, why don't you tell me about your company, Black Crow AI? So we're a machine learning and data infrastructure company. Machine learning is something, AI, something people tend to care a lot more about in the last sort of nine months. Data infrastructure is something that for most e-commerce company, no one gives a crap about. And so we have built data infrastructure and ML for people who don't give a crap about data infrastructure. And the key thing we do is we make it a lot easier, faster, and cheaper for brands of really any size to be able to use their own data more effectively with machine learning and also to get their first-party data house in order so that they actually understand and use the asset that they have which is their knowledge of consumer behavior, identity, future value. No, and that's that's a great lay of the land because my first real question for you is that about those services that are intended to help what you say mid-market e-commerce companies implement AI, because there's kind of that barrier for entry right now. And I'm curious if you could explain first off what those obstacles are for mid-market companies in, in implementing AI. Sure. And first, there's sort of two... Well, there's a few different fields of artificial intelligence uh, that are out there. I think probably listeners are most familiar with generative AI. These, these are the things that have come out in the very, you know, certainly over the last year, things like Dolly and Midjourney, ChatGPT, Bard, you know, the open AI, large language models. Those have actually become quite accessible. And there's a million different companies out there doing this kind of thing. And they are particularly helpful on the creative side of things, like writing copy, creating images, figuring out what your uh, ads should look like. We don't do any of that right now. Anyway, we're much more focused. There's another set of artificial intelligence, which is really involves making sense of massive amounts of data very, very quickly. Some people call it enterprise AI. Some people call it predictive AI. This has been around for longer, maybe five years. And it's the area that very large companies like the Fortune 500. So think Amazon, Walmart, Target, you know, these sort of big behemoths in, in retail and, and e-commerce have been using for a while. And that's about them. You know, companies are generating unprecedented amounts of data. And particularly as our world moves more and more digital, every activity that turns into this sort of streaming data source. And it doesn't get deleted either. A lot of people hold on to not it, get deleted. you know. <laughs> it does not get deleted. That's true. And what's super interesting is a lot of it's happening in real time. Meaning if you're a customer on Amazon, the way you're moving, like how fast you're moving through the Amazon sales funnel, how many products you're looking at, are you doing comparisons? Are you refining your search, sorting it by, you know, five stars or whatever? And all of that is this super, super rich trove of first-party data, meaning it's data that the brand Amazon in this case owns, and it's data about a user. And 
that behavioral data, in addition to all the normal contextual, like how did they get to Amazon? What's their past history with Amazon? You know, all those things. But that real-time data is this incredibly rich source if you're trying to understand how valuable is this customer going to be in the future? Are they actually going to buy? What do you think they're going to buy? Uh, are they going to come back? What kind of experience would make them even more valuable? All of that sort of behavioral signaling is very, very rich. But until sort of recently, being able to process that data, right, because it's all happening in real time as a user is shopping and there's just, you know, every single action a user takes will generate hundreds and hundreds of potential signals. It's been something that only the top tier of companies have been able to leverage. And when you can understand it and create a prediction or forecast a user's behavior or what their needs or intent are, it's very, very powerful. And when you can do that analysis, that prediction in real time, you can do so many things differently, right? Like you can change what the next page looks like. You can change what the offer or promotion they're exposed to. But really, you name it. And that ability to create those predictions, to create that intelligence in real time based on streaming data has been something that it's been Fortune 500. And even in the era of Gen AI and ChatGPT, this is not something that, you know, if you're a $5 million Shopify store selling T-shirts, uh, this has not been tech that's accessible to you. Our background uh, me, my co-founders, is in sort of large-scale uh, enterprise AI of doing exactly this. And we set out to level the playing field, which is how can we bring the same kinds of machine learning tools and outcomes to the middle of the market, right? To the $5 million Shopify store so that they're on an even playing field with all the capabilities that an Amazon or Walmart has. So that's really what we're focused on is democratizing all of these tools. And at the end of the day, it's about making better decisions about where you as a brand spend time, spend money. And the more that these larger companies are implementing AI and the mid-market and lower tier companies aren't, it's it's a, an adapt or die scenario where if they don't adapt to artificial intelligence and, and implement it more, they'll just get swallowed by an, anyone and everyone at the at the top of the key, right? So as a solution, you try to get this AI service to mid-market teams, but how are you able to do that cost effectively for both you and your clients? Because it feels like if someone would have cracked the code, they would have earlier because someone's got to lose out. So I'm curious how how you I don't know solved the Rubik's Cube there. So there's a few different sort of ways into that question, but I'd say the big one is we had a lot of experience building the kind of central system that an Amazon has, right? So for us, it's time consuming. And especially when you get into real time, it's it's not easy or cheap. And the way, like if you're whatever, Pfizer or some giant company, the way you'll do it is you'll go buy an instance of Databricks, which is like a big enterprise infrastructure tool. You'll hire an army of data scientists and engineers, and then you will build your own stack. Now, obviously, and that will cost you you know, double-digit millions over a few years to be able to do that. Uh, but it pays off in the end. You know, there's a lot of fails along the way, but but it pays off. Obviously, if you're a Shopify store, you're not going to spend double-digit millions over a few years to develop this kind of thing. But because we had experience building it, what we did is we essentially built one of these centrally on our own. We didn't use tools like Databricks. And the places where we innovated were 
how do you create bespoke instances of this central system fast, cheap, and easy, right? So you can literally, with one click, you can download our Shopify app and have access to a Fortune 500 grade machine learning system in less than a minute. You can try it out for free, so you don't have to pay anything to do that. Use it for a month. We'll walk you through how to get the benefits um, of it. But being able to create these sort of bespoke instances of it and then engineer all of the complexity out of integrating it and using it, that's really the thing where we spent a lot of time is just how do you take out complexity? How do you take out cost? And how do you... And a lot of that is by this isn't a big, complicated system that does everything all at once for you. It's focused on tackling the most important pain points one at a time with guidance. And we make sure that the value delivery is there because that's the only way we get we get paid. I know that's all a little bit abstract. Maybe we want to dive into like more details about what we actually um, do or how a customer would use this kind of AI tool, but that, that's the basics of it. No, I, I appreciate the macro, honestly. I think the big picture is much more interesting personally. So you, you mentioned your software is obviously in the in the predictive sector of AI. There were like a Venn diagram. So I'm curious what some of the specific predictions that your machine learning platform is making. You know, I should, before we even dive in there, I should talk about, I mentioned at the beginning, there's a uh, an AI layer and a data infrastructure layer. Yeah, sure. I'll just want to talk for two seconds about the infrastructure because it's super important, right? And as you mentioned earlier, you know, everyone, the big guys are getting into AI. The smaller guys, if they don't, are going to be at some form of competitive disadvantage. All this stuff comes down to data, right? Like everyone's kind of got the message that data is the new gold or oil or whatever. And even OpenAI and all Google, like these companies are fundamentally about making sense of data and manipulating data, presenting data. And the same is true for, for brands, right? OpenAI and, and generative AI is really about making sense of the whole universe of data, like the entire internet essentially is the training data set. Predictive and what we do is much more focused on how do you make sense of your own data? So you as a brand or an e-commerce company, how do you make sense of your data specifically, not everyone's data, but yours and only yours so that you can make much better decisions? And a big part of that, you know, if you think about what is an e-commerce company, they're essentially a, a CAC LTV engine, right? It's about customer acquisition. Um, at the center, you've got a product or a service that hopefully has value and people want. But you live and die as an e-commerce company by like, how well are you able to bring people in front of your product or service? And, you know, how efficiently? And then what is the long-term value or the lifetime value of having brought someone in front of your product or service? And so, yes, there's a lot of innovation around the product, but ultimately death is just around the corner if you can't get that CAC LTV equation right. And so CAC LTV is ultimately about people. It's about users. And one of the things that's, that's happened right now is a brand's ability to build a relationship with a user has become more and more data-based, especially in e-commerce, meaning you need to be able to bring a user to your site, but then you want to start building a relationship. You want them to opt in to your, you know, your email newsletter or alerts, your SMS alerts. You want them to come back. You want to be able to remember where they were. So you're showing them relevant stuff and engage with them. In the big privacy 
I'm sure you know, like iOS and Safari have been changing things. They're messing around with Meta's ability to make money. And as this big war among the platforms happens, the unfortunate consequence for brands is that they haven't been able to build lasting customer relationships as effectively because, you know, cookies are going away. These platforms are blocking each other. And what it means is like brands can't recognize their own visitors, right? They don't know if you're someone who has bought before and has signed up for SMS price alerts and whatever, and you come back to this brand you love, that brand doesn't know it's you. So they can't serve you um, the right stuff. They can't trigger an email if you left something in your cart in the way they used to be able to. And that's all because of like, happy to go into detail, but these sort of like wars among the platforms about how data can flow and who owns the customer, who owns identity. But on the infrastructure side, one of the most basic things that a brand can do, if brands remember one thing I, from this podcast, I hope it's this, one of the most basic things you can do to make your business more profitable is just make sure you know who's who, right? Know who your customers are, know who's really a new anonymous user versus someone who's bought from you before or logged in. And so we've developed something that's called Smart ID. It's a piece of like server side infrastructure that takes you away from relying on the whole cookie ecosystem, which is constantly changing and under attack to a server side identifier. So it's sort of outside of all these debates happening just so that once someone engages with you, buys, signs up, whatever it is, you can now know who they are in perpetuity. It won't expire because Apple thinks it should expire after 24 hours or seven days. Uh, it's just now you know who's who. So you can do all those normal things. As it happens, that will help you you know, make way more money from your email campaigns. It will help you drive better data into Facebook. So all of your advertising campaigns, your customer acquisition campaigns in Meta or Google or wherever get much more effective because the platform has better data. And it's on top of that, just sort of very core, very fundamental basis of infrastructure that you can then start doing all the really fancy stuff around ML and predictions. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and I think you're touching on something really valuable with the with the smart ID. Not to get too hokey or anything, but when I was when I was bartending, it made a lot of sense financially to learn a customer's name, figure out what their drink order was give it to them promptly because you made more tips. And, and and I know that seems kind of archaic in the in the scheme of our conversation, but a smart ID does the same thing. It's 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 establishing this is a customer, this is their behavior and this is how we can predict what they're going to do next, you know, if you know Jack comes in, orders a Miller Lite and is a fan of the Redskins, then that's I'm going to probably talk with him about football and end up making more money because he's going to stick around drinking, talking about football with me. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's how it translates in my head. So I I think it's really cool seeing that develop in the e-commerce and and tech space. It's a great analogy. And when I was in college, I was a bartender too. (laughs) Everyone should be at some point in their life, I think. Oh, totally. It's sort of, I think it's like the king of the, is it a blue collar job? I don't know, but it's the king of the blue collar (laughs) jobs. But knowing that someone comes in and every day they order the same beer, when they sit down, you don't want to give them the cocktail list, right? You want to give them their beer or just say the usual, right? And that sort of breeds that familiarity. And that's really what brands want to do, right? Like even at the most basic level, like have you bought here before? 
do you always shop for menswear, not women's wear? So let me not, you know, your landing page be women's clothing if if what you like is men's uh, or this sort of price point. All that, it's just very fundamental stuff. And yeah, it adds up to better tips, more transactions. And now I'm curious with your AI's predictions, how you test the accuracy of them or the efficacy of them. So that's all happening in real time. So as I mentioned, to get wonderful, it's literally a click. But in real time, what happens is we're take like the very first prediction we did, which is sort of one of the most foundational ones. It's like, how likely is this person to buy, to like transact, subscribe, you know, whatever that key objective function for a brand is. And so usually the way we work is we push that prediction back in real time. So we say, Alex, at this moment in time, he is, you know, his uh, conversion probability is 0.6851 or lower. The next action he takes, we refresh that prediction. And that prediction is based on a model that the Black Crow machine has created just for the brand that you're on. And then what we usually do to make it more manageable is we'll divide it into, you know, deciles. So Alex is part of the highest future value decile that, that your brand has. And that 10%, that highest 10% of users is part of a population. Anyone in there is part of a population that will reliably convert at 43% versus Richard, you know, very unlikely to convert. He's in the bottom decile. His expected conversion rate is, you know, the same as a, a population that will convert at 0.2% and everyone in between. And this can be as detailed, it can be low, medium, high, ventiles, quintile, whatever you want. But then once you have that prediction, for example, and it gets updated with each action a user takes in real time, you now, we just push that back to you and make sure it flows into any system where it would be helpful. And so, you know, for example, for the Richards who are like so unlikely to convert in the, in the future, now that you know that, and we've pushed that prediction into say your meta campaigns, you may want to decide like, actually, I don't want to spend any more money advertising on Instagram to the Richards of the world. And let me take what I would have spent and start using it on the Alex's of the world, right? Who are very likely to convert just because it's going to pay off. Same, like if I'm thinking of running a promotion or even I don't know Alex, I don't know Alex, but because he's uh, very likely to convert, I really want to make sure he signs up for my uh, email newsletter, right? For my sales and offers and whatever. And so maybe I want to create a bigger incentive for him to opt in. Whereas for the Richards, eh, maybe I don't really want to have a discount out there because they're they're never going to buy anything. So any kind of decision you would want to make based on the fact that you now have this future knowledge of how likely someone is to buy, what their future value is, that can be huge, right? It, can, it enables you to spend your time and, and resources much, much more efficiently. That's wonderful. And, and it actually is a decent segue into my next question because part of major selling point of Black Crow as you've kind of been hinting at a little bit, is it's designed for marketers, not data scientists and engineers. And I'm curious what your reasoning behind that was. I mean, was it as simple as cutting down or cutting out the middleman in, in that game of telephone from the data scientists to the marketers? Because those are the people who are usually using the research anyway. What was your primary reason reasoning there? It kind of comes back to that when I was talking about like if you're Walmart or Pfizer, how would you go about getting the value of, of predictive AI? There, when you look at the market, there's a lot of really big, successful companies like Databricks, and they're essentially builder tools. 
examples, right? It's like by machine learning engineers for machine learning engineers or by data scientists for data scientists. But if you want to bring this to the Fortune 500,000 inside of a lot of, say, Shopify stores, there's no data science team. There's no machine learning engineering team. There's just people who want answers fast so they can do their job. And so when we started out, we decided we weren't going to be by engineer, even though our company is full of machine learning engineers, we're just a bunch of like data nerds. Um, but we decided we're not going to build this for people like us. We're going to build it for the people who are trying to make successful, right? For the entrepreneurs, the e-commerce operators. And so this is built for operators. It's built for marketers and others in the organization who are just trying to get the data they need and the predictions they need to make good decisions. And so, you know, when you boil it down, a, there is no uh, data scientist to sell to at, in the in the middle of the market. But then B, even like for those giant companies that have, you know, machine learning engineers, the prediction is not the end goal. It's how do you put the prediction into action to make the business better? And they figured that out too. And so it says we're leapfrogging the whole builder phase of things and just getting it right into the hands of people who drive the business outcomes, right? Who want to grow faster, increase their ROAS, reduce their customer acquisition costs, uh, grow their email marketing list or their SMS list, understand how effective their spend is. Those are the people on the front lines who need to be armed with the data to make good decisions. And so we just wanted to make that super easy. And that actually incentivizes y'all to make the user experience and the, and the user interface really marketer friendly too. It's instead of, you know, kind of, kind of bare bones to where all I need is to extrapolate it so that I can do whatever I want with it. That really incentivizes y'all to make a really pretty product at the end of the day. Yeah. And actually we took it even a step further, which is marketers have so many interfaces today, right? They've got their Google ad manager and TikTok and Facebook. They've already trained themselves on these things. Now, eventually we'll have, you know, a, a very beautiful front end, but for the moment, we just feed our predictions into the platforms they already use, into their existing workflows. So for instance, like one of the products we have out today is that smart idea I was telling you about for Clavio, right? So if you want to identify more of your users, know who they are, so you can trigger your uh, your normal set of email flows, um, like they left something in cart or they visited and looked at this product. Now you know who they are, so you can engage them in that way. If you want to understand how effective this is, like how much more revenue came from these emails or how many more flows were you able to trigger, there's nothing to sign into at BlackCrow. You just go to your Clavio interface and you'll see those numbers uh, right there. And so we tried to just work with the existing workflows and interfaces that marketers already use, not add a new one. No, that's wonderful. I think that's really cool. Moving on to kind of some more macro ideas about AI in general. How do you ensure that your AI technology is consistently learning and predicting in the right direction? For example, I mean, any helpful tactics and prediction models instead of detrimental ones, because it needs to be consistently calibrated, I'm assuming. I guess a little education on that would be helpful. Sure. So you're totally right. That's a, been a big issue in the, especially the predictive ML world. Where, you know, in the past, a few years ago, there's this phenomenon known as model drift, right? Like you would build a model, 
often on a laptop or, you know, some offline mechanism, you would train it on past data. We're like, great, I found a predictive algorithm. Now I'll just use that. And then you check in and check in on it, like how predictive it is three months later. And you're like, oh, that model that really worked, you know, at, at Thanksgiving does not work at spring break anymore. And, the, and, you know, different verticals, you know, in retail, different um, brands, different customer bases, they go through ebbs and flows, right? And seasonality can be a big thing, you know, et cetera. And so what we did, the way we work around that at Black Crow is, I mentioned, first of all, we created a bespoke model. There's not one predictive model for all of e-commerce and you just use ours. What happens is when you download our app, that begins a model training period where the machine sort of listens. There's no human involvement required on, on either side, but the, the machine listens. It understands of all the streaming data. What is predictive of the thing you're trying to predict? So it identifies the signals. It finds patterns. Usually takes, you know, seven to 10 days. Then it has like a, essentially a feature weighting or an algorithm that says, Oh, wow. When I see someone do this, that is tending towards that or this in combination with that is tending towards this other thing. And so those models are running and every night in the middle of the night, the machine wakes up and it looks at the most recent data and rebuilds that whole predictive algorithm as though the other one didn't exist and creates a new one. And that happens every single day over and over discreetly for every brand we work with. And so that's a way that to overcome the phenomenon of model drift or a changing, you know, consumer behavior uh, macro environment. Wonderful. In terms of the current, I don't know, perspective, public persona of AI, do you see it as kind of kind of risky creating a brand with such an emphasis on artificial intelligence, where there's kind of still a, a bit of a murky connotation or or stigma attached to it, and and I can chalk it up as simply as I think people fear what they don't understand sometimes, my, myself included. I'm, I'm curious if you see the Black Crow brand being so synonymous with AI as risky. Yes and no. I think like, first of all, the world, so we've only been around for about two and a half years, but I and my co-founders and our, our team has been in this world for a decade. Yeah, partly like, because there's a lot of vaporware out there and, you know, in the last AI wave, and then certainly in the chat GPT wave, all of a sudden overnight, everyone's an AI company, right? You read their website and it's like, oh yeah, and using AI, we blah, blah, blah. And whatever that might, who knows what that means, if anything. And Richard, the reality is most of these companies already did. They just didn't promote it because it wasn't trendy yet. You know what I'm saying? I mean, everyone has auto text on their phone and didn't know that that was AI until chat GPT got popular, you know? Right. But when, when you boil it down, I mean, there's a bunch of like companies that are essentially wrappers on top of, you know, chat GPT. And then there's a bunch of companies who do something that sounds like AI, but it's trendy and they think they'll be worth more if they say AI and whatever those things come and go. But at the end of the day, we really are like a machine learning company at our core and you scratch the surface. And what we're doing is creating infrastructure to let brands succeed. And on top of which you can run uh sophisticated ai models fast cheap and easy and so we really are it's actually what we do comfortable um with that because once you dig in you realize like oh these guys are doing something no one else is really doing for this this end of the market and 
it will come in and out of fashion, but um, as long as we're delivering value to customers, I don't think it matters what our name is. Yeah, I think in the long scheme, it's not like AI in general is a fad, but some of its uses can be, you know. Before we wrap up, I, I did want to ask you about your time with Travelocity. So I did a little research and you were the senior vice president. Is, is that accurate? That's right. Which is a massive company. But was purchased it's owned by, by Expedia. Expedia, by the way. yeah, exactly. But I'm, you know, I'm old enough to remember the Travelocity gnome and uh, those commercials. So rambling to say, essentially, what was that experience? How did that experience inform your current role as the head of uh, Black Crow AI? Sure. Yeah. The way I got to Travelocity is the very first company that I was a co-founder of was actually acquired by Travelocity, and we were you know, a team of fewer than 120 somethings in New York City. And we were acquired by this like $10 billion company, Dallas, Texas. And we sort of thought we this was another technology company that we had co-founded. And we thought, okay, they're going to integrate. We had some unique technology about real-time pricing and availability. And we thought, okay, they're going to integrate our tech and then they'll shoot us all and fine, we'll go start another company. And it turned in, in, into this like really crazy experience where, you know, less than a year into our, uh, after the, the acquisition, the board of Travelocity cleared out a lot of the management team of Travelocity. And they said, Hey, you know, you bunch of kids up in New York, come run the mothership. And we were like, what? And they had said they were like, Oh, there's going to be all these management opportunities for you. And we really value the team. We were like, whatever, you know, we don't really believe you. And. Then all of a sudden, so my co-founder, who was the CEO of, of that first company, it was called Site59. She became the CEO of Travelocity. I ran strategy, business development, and the about a third of the business. Our CTO, our chief product officer, our general counsel, like everyone, uh, we took over Travelocity. And so for five years, we ran this like multi-billion dollar company and took, you know, these leaps uh in our careers that we you know, weren't expected. And it was definitely a trial by fire, but one of the most valuable experiences of business experiences of my life. That's an amazing story, man. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. And then eventually was taken private in a leverage buyout. And then Travelocity was sold to uh, Expedia. Crazy journey. But I think like what's informed, you know, we weren't doing any machine learning back in the day. It was a B2C company, obviously, Travelocity and, and understanding the value of customer relationships because like travel is such a commodity right like if you buy it at Expedia or Priceline or Orbitz or whatever still the same flight on American Airlines like you don't you're not manufacturing your own discrete product and so it really it's very hard to create loyalty because there's almost no product differentiation and so you had to find these ways to establish a relationship and that was um you know, a great learning in, in some of the problems that, that retailers face and that ultimately we're solving now in a very different way through artificial intelligence. How do you create and maintain these relationships? No, I think, I think that's a, a good similarity. I'm most curious as to, so, you know, you founded this company, it gets acquired by Travelocity. You start running Travelocity until it gets acquired by Expedia. How come you didn't just start running Expedia, Richard? <laughs> well, I would say... Um, 
Expedia is still a very solidly run company. I'd say the moment it, it got acquired, me personally, I, I was just getting married. So my wife and I both quit our jobs and we had a, a year-long honeymoon. We just traveled around the world for a year. That is too cool. Before we wrap up, I always ask guests, the same last question, e-commerce and entrepreneurs in the e-commerce world, it can be a very stress-inducing industry. So I find it's very important to practice like hobbies and interests to promote good mental health and work-life harmony. And you seem, you seem like a pretty Zen guy, but I am interested, what are some of your hobbies and interests to establish that work-life harmony? Sure. So I do meditate. In fact, I've lived in a Buddhist monastery for a while, quite, quite that a while That doesn't ago. surprise me. <laughs> yeah. So meditation is like, because you're right, whether it's a tech startup or an e-commerce um, venture, it's stressful, right? Like, because there's volatility. And until you really have a predictable business in front of you, like you wake up every morning and you're like, how do I win? How do I win? How do I make the right decisions? And so getting some perspective, being able to step out of that a little bit is very important because, you know, you think about what's an entrepreneur doing? They literally live in the future, right? If you're a tech entrepreneur, you're thinking about what technology is coming next in e-commerce. It's like, what's my quarter going to look like? How's my Black Friday going to look? How much money, you know, I'm going to make? What's Amazon going to do? Like you're literally projecting yourself into the future all the time. And like, if you think about the the message of of meditation or mindfulness, it's like, can you just be here for a second? Can you just like understand what's going on with you and look inwards and stop, you know, your own narrative about the future and the voices in your head. And so it's hard to be an entrepreneur and try to remain mindful, but if you can, you can bring a lot more perspective to the to the day to day and a lot sort of cooler, clearer mind to the craziness you have to go through each day. Absolutely. Well, I, I think that's really mindful of you. Richard, thank you for your time and good luck with Black Crow AI. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Likewise. Thanks, Alex. I'd like to thank my guest, Richard Harris, for joining me on the show and come back on Tuesday when I talk with Kayleen Grieve, the managing director of a company called Sales, SEO, and Social Media. For more information about Richard, you can connect with him on LinkedIn. To learn more about Black Crow AI, you can visit their website, blackcrow.ai. That's our show. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you come back to find new episodes being published every Tuesday and Thursday. Until then.